everyone. Welcome to Conservation Chronicles. I'm Jonah, and with me today is Camden Martin, who has been a guest co-host in the past. How are you doing, Camden? I'm doing great. Happy to be back on the show. Thanks for having me. What's new with you? Oh, you know, just in Maine here. Finally having spring. You know, we now we're in you know in the the month of May, so you know we had some nice uh, April showers that brought some nice snow plowers, and now <laughs> <laughs> and now we're in May, and hopefully it's going to bring some flowers at this point. So that's cool. Yeah, uh, we've how about yourself? We've had spring for about three months now. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm pretty sure you guys are summer at this point compared to us. Actually, yeah, it was like ninety percent humidity yesterday, <laughs> and probably ninety degrees. No, it's been actually pretty cloudy, um, but it's kind of like raining. Yeah, it's it's been comfortable <laughs> other than the humidity. But oh, nice! We still have freezing and snow in Hebron. So. <laughs> <laughs> but man, the migrant scene, the bird migrant scene here has been amazing the past couple of days um, because there's been a bunch of southerly winds. And I'm basically spending four hours a day birding, two hours in the morning, two hours in the evening, and I'm not getting anything done, even though I'm leaving Texas in 10 days. Uh, You know, priorities, not a problem. Hey, you uh, come across any of those warblers we saw back in Belize? Yeah, a lot of them, um, which is... They're probably like, who is this guy? Like, why is he following me so much? (laughs) I recognize this chump. Um, Yeah, a lot of um, black-throated green warblers. Um... American Red Starts I saw today, Magnolia oh, nice. Warblers. It's it's interesting. I mean, obviously, I have no idea where these specific warblers came from, but it's cool to think that, like, you know, maybe these are ones that I saw. I mean, the chances are basically zero, but it's so cool to know, know where they've come from and, like... Yes, to see now that they're there. See them, like, That's I just cool. saw them in Belize, like, less than two months ago, and then I'm seeing them here again, um... So it's pretty, pretty cool, and I just love them. And um, Orioles. This morning, I actually saw like a flock of orchard Orioles. It was so big, I thought it was cedar waxwings, and then I realized I I couldn't count them all because it was so so many, and they flew off. But there was at least fifteen in a flock, which was pretty impressive. That is pretty impressive indeed. Okay, well, why don't we just get right into our topic today, which is rewilding. Um, maybe some of you have heard that term, maybe you haven't, but basically rewilding is restoring environments to their historic condition, including connectivity of wilderness or reintroduction of wildlife like apex predators or keystone species in such a way that it doesn't require sustained human management. So you're restoring it to just a completely natural state where, um, you know, the wildlife, you're setting it up for recovery, basically. Indeed so. And uh, rewilding is a very interesting topic because it, you know, like we just said, it's all about kind of restoring um, historical conditions. And uh, perhaps those who, I think the first episode I was I was talking with you was on uh, with the Hawaiian monk seals, but I had mentioned that one of my favorite things is studying historical zoo geography. To, and then, so rewilding is very connected to that because, for example, um, you know, it's all about restoring what wildlife used, you know, used to be in a certain place. And so I get all giddy about that, thinking how cool, you know, this one place used to be like this, and now we're going to be able to restore it to that degree. And I get all really, really excited. So a little fun fact. Yeah. And it, I mean, obviously, like, goes without saying, but I'm going to say it. We can't ever restore it to the way it originally was. Like, Of course. Most places are too far gone. Um, yeah. Especially like, you know, a lot of the stuff that you like and that we talk about where, you know, like the range of lions in uh, not only just across Africa, but Asia and in, Southern Europe. And into the Middle East, yeah, into Europe, and yeah, Greece. And tigers whatnot. and cheetahs. I mean, we're just talking about carnivores here, but animals just used to be so much more widespread, especially in the old world. And just um, basically throughout history, we've been de-wilding the world. Um, 
by, you know, removing these species either directly by causing them to go extinct from killing or indirectly by removing their habitat or some other way of causing their populations to become locally extirpated. Right. And I think, um, you know, that's a common thing that's happened all across the world, whether it's, you know, um, extirpating wolves, you know, here in Maine, extirpating wolves or eastern mountain lions or wolverines, these types of things. Um, and then, in you know, for you coming originally from San Diego, you, know, you could even think about pronghorn and, and grizzly bears. Tell us some more about that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's probably my favorite one um, that is never going to be rewilded because San Diego could never support grizzly bears. But well, they've supported T Rexes with Jurassic Park. <laughs> one carrying capacity one. Um, this is true. Anyways, the you know they California grizzlies were was a, was a subspecies of brown bear that was extremely abundant across what is now California. Um, which is a, a crazy thing to think about. And growing up in San Diego, it's really cool, but also hard to you know imagine. Look at the mountain behind the house I grew up in, in and be like, you know, this mountain once had grizzly bears on it. Um, and the just the the period in which they were extirpated was it was so rapid you know beginning in the i mean of course it started earlier than the the mid 1800s but really in the mid 1800s it really escalated and um in san diego county at least by 1901 the last grizzly bear was shot and and killed and in california i think it was maybe a decade like for the whole state it was maybe a decade later but for a, you it's know, that's a span of what forty years, fifty years at the most. You know, that, yeah, that really yeah. I mean, it extensive. started probably a little bit earlier than that, but the intensity of it was within like a fifty-year period, probably. And for an entire, you know, it's it's impossible to know how many, but I've seen estimates of like ten thousand grizzly bears in what's now California. For them to just can be completely wiped off the map, something that's that big, um, is pretty amazing amazingly horrendous awful yeah exactly <laughs> amazingly terrible um and it's it's just such a uh, you know the, i mean people don't even realize the reason the california or the there's a brown bear on our flag is because the california grizzly used to be so, so abundant in the state and you know that flag is all we have left of evidence of grizzlies and i mean the the Especially for Southern California, um, I, because I grew up there, I like reading about the history of them and just like horrific stuff, the way that these grizzly bears were extirpated. I mean, you've heard of bullfighting. Well, they would catch live grizzlies and put them in a ring with a bull and people would bet on them and like really horrific scenes that were described almost by like witnesses right out of Roman Roman times almost. Yeah. Yeah. And so just, just like a, such a sad way for this amazing animal to become extirpated from the state. Um, but anyways, that's, that's just a, an example that hits close to home for me. And yeah, like you said, all in, um, Maine, the, all the other species, caribou, wolves, mountain lions, wolverine, just, just gone. All these, all these large, mammals that you know charismatic megafauna you know that really makes a place wild you know and to quote and i'm not going to quote exactly correct but um kind of like what aldo leopold you know said about the mountains and you know for the mexican grizzly you know where the mountains where the mountains grizzly bears once roam and now that they're no longer existing there they're just mountains they're no longer necessarily wilderness kind of yeah they they uh, represent these these kind of species represent like wildness almost that's right it it really adds that sphere to you know camping and whatnot you know just like for example when we were in belize it's just you know yes we did see a jaguar but no matter where else we went you always said to yourself you know we'd always say you know we're in jaguar territory it really just added all that extra 
to the experience, even if we didn't see them, didn't see any trace of them, just the idea that there could possibly be one really makes it all that more exciting and, um, you know, you really appreciate it, if you will. Yeah, and it's, I mean, in addition to that, like, this isn't all about, you know, the reason for rewilding place isn't just like, so we can feel like it's more wild. These animals obviously play a role in the ecosystem. Indeed so. And probably one of the best examples that has been studied and extensively studied actually is the reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone National Park. You know, wolves used to be there and then they went extinct and that just allowed the elk population to expand and they, you know, they weren't dealing with this predator anymore. So they were spending more time on the open and on the river eroding the banks, which, and, you know, foraging along the banks, which just changed the composition of the vegetation, which obviously, you know, has this cascading effect on all the other animals that use that area and um, feed on those plants and stuff. And when gray wolves were reintroduced, now there was this predator that had returned and elk kind of... uh, had to learn to deal with them. And so they started spending less time out in the open, spending more time on, you know, forest edges and in the forest. And so that pressure that was removed from riverbanks allowed, you know, prevented erosion, allowed a lot of plants to grow back like aspen and stuff. And then that allowed beavers to come back. And, you know, the the whole landscape just changed even visually. Um, And, that just really shows you how a species like a gray wolf is a really important member of that ecological community. And, you know, even though in other places it hasn't been you know, a loss of these predators or, or other large animals hasn't been as obviously shown. Right. It, it's still, there's still that relationship that's going on there. And, you know, maybe it is that obvious it just hasn't been as studied as actively because it's not Yellowstone National Park. And if it's not, you know, carnivores, it could be certain species of plants that are missing, certain species of fish, things like that, to really bring it back to, you know, a, a more high-functioning, healthy ecosystem. Um, and, you know, talking about that, it really kind of reminds me, you know, what I'm about to say is, you know, People a lot of times, you know, those who aren't necessarily, you know, ecologically, you know, their inclined. mindset isn't as such inclined. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Um, you know, a lot of times they're going to consider wildlife in terms of money, in terms of fiscal matters. And so, there, I mean, I hate to have to justify wildlife presence just, you know, for financial reasons, but it, it is proven. And thank God, because otherwise it would be even that harder to, you know, to do actual conservation. But, you know, um, great examples are wetlands, you know, even restoring wetlands and, you know, rewilding wetlands to a degree, um, actually have a huge, um, financial, uh, impact, uh, because, you know, as we know, wetlands are one of the most active and, um, productive ecosystem. And that also has, you know, in terms of, fil- you know, and that can also be applied into filtering and filtering, um, things that are, you know, from, uh, from an anthro, um, from a human, um, how do I want to go with that with human, um, activity. Uh, so for example, um, whether that's human waste or human tox, uh, you know, to- toxins and contaminants and whatnot, those granted, we would like to avoid it to begin with, but wetlands can, you know, if it's not in huge doses can play a role and constraining that and, um, the plant matter and whatnot can take it into the root system and it gets generally filtered out. You know, it's almost acting like kidneys, you know, for the ecosystem. And that has a huge financial because now you're not having to pay for man-made systems to do that. It's actually being done naturally. And, um, that's actually, you know, there's been reports and, you know, study, you know, different cities and whatnot have done reports and saying, Hey, listen, this is how much we're saving by just letting nature do it, take its course. And rewilding is, it's about getting to letting nature to get to that point so it can take care of itself. And then like we just, you know, like we said, it's, you know, doesn't need sustained human management. Yeah. And a lot of, like you said, a lot of people aren't, um, you know, ecologically minded. And so there's a lot of resistance 
there can be a lot of resistance in rewilding because you're trying to put, whether it's predators that people fear or a large animal that has... Compete for resources. Yeah, or, you know, get into their crops or, or whatever. Um, people are op- opposed to it because they're not willing to live alongside wildlife. And yes, wildlife do cause problems in some cases, but that can be mitigated by us changing our behavior. And also changing our mentalities too about kind of accepting it almost to a degree, not necessarily accepting everything and not doing anything. um, But for example, I I like to give the example to a lot of people about, um, you know, people that live just outside of the Gear National Forest in the Gujarat Peninsula in India. You know, they live right next to wild Asiatic lions, um, People, you know, lose cattle often. People will lose, you know, people will also die. They'll be killed. Um, and if you talk to, like, especially the Bishnoi people, uh, if you were to interview them and ask them, you know, do they get upset about that? You know, of course, they're upset about the loss and whatnot. But a lot of the response is, hey, these are our neighbors. They, they were here first. You know, this is just the way, this is what it costs to live here. And they kind of accept that. And I I find it it would be really hard to kind of have that mentality here in the West, especially because it's just, it's been so long since, you know, there's been that kind of more or less tolerated coexistence. Uh, Perfect example is um, the, uh, there was a project in uh, Western Germany to reintroduce uh, European bison. Um, It was a huge project that I've been following for a couple of years. I think it goes back to 2013, if I'm not mistaken, where they decided that they were going to reintroduce European bison to their historical range. They did all kinds of impact studies and make feasibility studies, and they were going to reintroduce them to um, the Rotherbridge Reserve. And so they were going to be, of course, at first they were in, um, in an enclosed setting, getting used to the environment, and then they were let free. And, you know, just recently I read an article where now they're going to have to basically catch the bison and put them into a 1,500 hectare, no, 150 hectare uh, reserve. And um, and they're, the reason behind it is they said that the amount of damages caused on local crops and whatnot couldn't justify their presence or basically like there wasn't enough there um but, but they had set up a program where you know government um would subsidize damages from you know the bison for this project and it was just not enough it was too much and so they weren't they said basically we have to you know we're not going to kill them but we're going to have to enclose them in in, in a cl- closed off area and um they kind of justify it by saying it's going to be a, perme- a permeable fence where small animals and whatnot can kind of go in and out as they please, but the bison will be restrained to that area, uh, which is sad, you know, because I remember being so excited thinking that um, bison would be returning to their historical homeland in Germany, and now they won't be. And uh, it's it's pretty sad to think all that effort that had gone into it, all those hopes, dreams, money, uh, people's time, those animals themselves, uh, now they're going to have to be restricted to, you know, a piece of land, and, you know, there's all kinds of issues that can start happening with that, so... Once again, it's just kind of, you know, when we're talking about mentalities, and that's a that's a typical mentality. Yeah, and uh, twice already, it just happened. It happened in 2017, and then it just happened this past January 2019 in Germany, where uh, wild bison from Poland was, you know, roaming, um, dispersing, or or whatever, and it went into Germany and that's you know that's what you want when you restore right. when you restore a you know a population in a certain area you want it to grow and you want it to be a source for the surrounding areas so that you know they can disperse and expand the population that's that's the point and and that's the point of reserves as well and these you know on two occasions bison have wandered into Germany and they authorities killed them because of really ignorance um because these people aren't trained you know to deal I, I, with if these I'm not mistaken they said it was going to be a huge um you know traffic issue you know they're worried about people you know hitting them or getting running into them or whatnot i think that was the whole issue that they were saying oh we need to get rid of them because now people are going to 
you know, basically hit them. I'm quite sure at least one of the occasions they were worried about the, um, you know, basic driving laws that could be not laws, but, um, safety that could be infringed upon because of um, wild bison running around, which is pretty, pretty crazy thinking about there's more people that, you know, there's more drunk drivers that kill more people in anywhere than someone driving into another animal. So, yeah, but all, but the reason, you know, the, the police officers have no idea what to do in a situation like that. And so they just, their immediate reaction was to shoot it, even though it's a, like federally, like legally protected species. On an international level, if I'm not mistaken. And so, like, the the, fir- the only thing they could think of to do was to shoot it because, you know, that's just their gut reaction. You know, let's kill it because it has the potential to be dangerous. And it's just, it's just ignorance, really. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's... A real shame, especially, you know, with the, the whole program in Germany, how much time and money and effort went into trying to reestablish those bison. And then now they're just like, oh, we're going to keep them in a fence and call them, you know, pretend like they're wild, but they're not. You put a yeah, fence around exactly. something. It's no, I'm sorry. You, it's no longer wild. It's no longer. It's, a, it's an elaborate zoo at this point. Exactly. Exactly. Um. One example that actually just came up today, and I'm really glad it came up, I, I saw it before we recorded, um, and I, I had no clue that this was even going on, but it was about a the largest lion reintroduction ever attempted, and it was in the Zambezi River Delta in Mozambique in a private hunting concession. And so, um, basically, the, this hunting concession... Um, worked with a lot of other people to get lion source lions from several reserves in South Africa, where they where the population was doing well, and bring them to the Zambezi Delta, and they actually did twenty four lions. Um, I believe it was eighteen females and six males, and. Lions that have um, were extirpated from the delta. I forget when. It actually the art, Nat Geo article didn't say when, but they've been extirpated for a while. Um, you know, many decades where there's people that remember, like, don't remember the last time they saw a lion. Like maybe when they were a kid, they they were saying. And so, this is an awesome example of rewilding. In addition, you know, before they're doing this lion thing this guy who manages the concession um, has, you know, the concession, they, they hunt on it, but they all aren't hunting irresponsibly. And so if you don't know, Mozambique experienced a really long civil war that ended in the early 90s. And, you know, in civil wars like that, wildlife populations get wiped out because people are eating them and stuff. And right. so the the ungulate populations were just decimated and that's probably also why the lions went extinct locally and um in the late 90s when this guy took over you know the ungulate populations were really depleted and just by managing it properly and letting you know the populations recover naturally it's it's just a completely changed environment compared to the past few decades and so now there's a large prey base and so now they thought we can reestablish lions here now and it's an amazing story and we'll we'll obviously share the link but of course they're not going to do this without because this isn't like a national park that's fenced or anything this is a, a basically it's called a game management area and so there's communities there's villages and stuff people live here and you can't just take lions, you know, if all the authorities are okay with it. You need to have the communities on board. And they were all on board. Um, a lot of it had to do with the, you know, they view lions in a very spiritual way and it's important in their culture. But that's that's fine. And they were so willing and excited for this to happen. Um, that is pretty exciting. And just the logistics of... You know, moving that many lions is quite the feat its own. And, you know, 
Yeah, there were apparently a lot of naysayers because something this big has never been done. But, you know, the reason they did it is because, you know, if you were to just release 10 lions and half of them died from whatever, you you know, you're down to this, you're having this population bottleneck. If you start off with a larger um, initial Sample population, population yeah. you have more wiggle room when a few die and it's going to allow the population to expand more rapidly and there to be more genetic diversity. And so it's just a, it's a really cool example of rewilding all the way from the end of the civil war and the ungulate populations recovering. And now these lions were actually reintroduced last August and already um, some cubs have been born. And That's exciting news. So it's just a really awesome example. And I'm excited to follow this because it's how re- a rewilding effort like this should go. But it's also a, a great example of how hunting can benefit conservation if, you know, concessions like that are managed in the right way. Unfortunately, in Africa, a lot of concessions aren't managed responsibly and ecologically like this. But this is this is the way to go to use this, um, you know, f- profits from hunting and the just the position that this concession owner is in to help restore, you know, this ecosystem ecosystem to its natural state. Indeed. So, um, let's let's dive into a couple. I mean, great. You know, it's a great rewilding effort, you know, that it's on. But it's it would be neat to kind of talk about, you know, different rewilding cases around the world, uh, whether it be different organizations or initiatives. Um, one that comes immediately to the mind is um, a pretty cool uh, idea is the uh, European Green Belt. And um, it's a really interesting idea. Um, it dates back to the um, Soviet Union. Uh, so during the Soviet Union, of course, it, you know, referring to um, Winston Churchill's famous phrase, you know, the Iron Curtain, you know, it was, you know, basically, you know, difference between West and Eastern Europe. Uh, but anyways, uh, along the frontier of those, you know, different um, political spheres, there was an actual, you know, whether it was walls or different types of barriers that were put in place. And a lot of people didn't live on the, the frontiers. And so places were abandoned and... Um, you know, wildlife kind of started to come back on its own. And, you know, so basically this kind of where the Iron Curtain was, this kind of green belt almost, you know, basically formed and kind of happened, you know, as a byproduct really. And uh, and so now it's this whole idea about trying to conserve that. It follows a lot of the areas like along the Danube. You know, it's Danube's been referred to as Europe's Amazon. It's a very long river um, with going through a lot of different countries into, you know, diverse places. Uh, so that's a really, really cool initiative. And it reminds me kind of of two events also that can think of the, the Korean um, demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. You know, it's a expanse of land. I can't remember how big it is in diameter, uh, but basically it's from the whole entire border between the both countries. And within that space, you know, that's a no-go zone for people, um, animals have started to come back. You know, or, you know there's uh, water deer, there was all kinds of different species, even um, you know, people, whether or not it's been corroborated or not, but, you know, Siberian tigers, it's just the idea that, you know, wildlife are able to, you know, kind of flourish in these abandoned places. And the greatest example, of course, is uh, Chernobyl, kind of an event of um, accidental natural rewilding. If I'm not sure if you can coin it like that, but um, <laughs> so, you know, uh, of course, Chernobyl was a catastrophe, you know, completely horrible natural disaster that happened in 1986. You know that was due to poor management of the um, the nuclear plant that you know ended up catching on fire and exploding and then setting you know a huge radioactive um, you know there's radioactive winds but there's a you know around the the epicenter of where that happened it's a, it's completely zoned off no one everyone had to abandon it and no one can live there um, and so that's what it's been you know over twenty over thirty years now um, wildlife that had not been in the area for a long time is starting to show up. And whether that be uh, Eurasian gray wolves, brown bears, uh, moose, um, you know, wild boar, they all started coming into that area. It kind of became this like nursery almost for wildlife. Uh, Granted, the area is still highly contaminated. You can't live there, but, um, and I'm not going to go into too much, but animals, because of how long they don't, you know, they don't live as long as humans. They're not, 
developing mutations and whatnot. So they're actually quite healthy. Um, but you know, if you are interested, go, you know, there's a lot of documentaries about it. Feel free to go check them out. Uh, but it's interesting, uh, to think that humans are actually more, um, dangerous for wildlife than radioactivity. So it's kind of an interesting, <laughs> uh, you know, it's an interesting, you know, parallel you can kind of extract from that and to the point where they actually reintroduced um, uh, Eurasian bison and Przewalski's horses. And Przewalski's horses numbers only fluctuate because of, there is some natural, you know, deaths with wolves and whatnot, but they will fluctuate because of poaching. That's the only reason. People are still poaching, of course, and then it goes on. But it's it's just interesting to think about. Yeah, that's a, that's a really cool incidental example of rewilding. Um. So, like, as we said in the beginning and along the same lines as the green belt, which is a really, um, really cool thing because also, you know, as far as original natural habitat, it's pretty limited in Europe. And so to have this green belt is, is really important for a lot of species. Um, but here in North America, there is this organization that's called the Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative. And it's basically dedicated to long-term ecological health of wilderness and wildlife, all the way from Yellowstone in the United States to the northern Yukon Territory in Canada. And they they do a lot. Um, and, you know, don't need to get into the details of it, but basically they're working with landowners to help maintain and enhance habitat connectivity and, you know, working with governments and agencies to do this as well. So they are pretty well known, at least in the United States, I don't know about elsewhere, but um, this area is well known for the construction of wildlife road crossings, which are basically bridges of natural habitat that go over roads because a lot of species like you know large species especially like moose and elk and stuff aren't going to go under a culvert um so they build these roads that or they build these really wide bridges that go over highways and stuff and they're forested or you know they have vegetation planted and stuff and so wildlife can just cross over and they're very they're extremely effective and they're starting to be used all in a lot of other places. But this is sort of part of maintaining this habitat connectivity um, from Yellowstone to Yukon. And then the organization also, um, you know, works to have dams removed and fights dam construction. They're involved with habitat restoration and then also even supporting research. Um, one notable species um, they support research for is the wolverine because it's a sort of a good indicator of habitat connectivity and and wilderness because of how widely they roam and so and they do a lot of other stuff with grizzlies and and things like that but they just it's a very collaborative initiative um their you know partner list is super long whether it's government agencies other organizations landowners, um, or companies, um, corporations. And it's just a really cool collaborative effort to maintain connectivity in an already wild place, but to prevent it, that from being degraded basically. Which is key. Yeah. Because I mean, we should have learned our lesson by now in most places, and we <laughs> want to prevent to say, Jonah. <laughs> we want to prevent uh, we want to prevent you know what we've already experienced in many places from happening in these few places that we have left like like this Yellowstone Yukon I mean that's that's some of the wildest places in North America that have been kept more or less intact I mean you know coming here to New England I mean um there's pretty much nowhere that hasn't actually fallen underneath the plow or been somehow modified by, you know, by man. Uh, so like you said, it is, it's really so important to at least keep those wild places as wild as possible for as long as possible. And which is a really cool initiative. And like you just said, like a lot of places have gone under the plow, you know, when places, um, 
you know, when agriculture, agriculture areas have been abandoned or whatever, and, you know, forests grow back, they're not necessarily growing back in the way that they used to. This um, is true. As far as like, you know, species composition and things like that. And obviously age. Um, so, you know, even though we can, we can directly manage for certain types of forest restoration and things, but we don't, we don't have what it used to be. Um, you know, cause when it's lost, it's lost. It's just, it's just as like a st- extinction. It can come back, but underneath a different form. Yeah. And I mean, it can still support wildlife. And I mean, you know, the bear study at unity was a good example of central Maine, uh, was all agriculture and it's recovering now. And so the forest has grown back. And so bear are, bears are recolonizing and the habitat is, is fine to support bears, but it's not necessary. It, it looks very different than it did, you know, 200 years ago when it supported bears then just like it can support bears now, but it's, it's not the same because, um, the way the forest is just growing back differently and the soil has been changed and stuff. It's not to say that it's, you know, still not natural, but it's like you said, it's, it's what it's lost. It can never be completely replicated. Exactly. Um, I kind of wanted to, to mention to some of our listeners some uh, some neat and really cool rewilding organizations. So um, one that comes to mind is the Rewilding Foundation. So, um, well, you know, this is a common theme of a lot of rewilding. It's about bringing back, you know, especially a lot of key predators and key, you know, herbivores because those are like some of the first major species to disappear because they're so sensitive on, you know, for many different reasons. But, uh, this one was founded actually as the Anatolian leopard foundation. Uh, so, uh, those who are familiar with the term Anatolia refers to, of course, Turkey, um, in the middle East. And so it was, you know, it was an organization that was created to study the survival of the Anatolian leopard in the Taurus mountains of Southern Turkey to really see if there were any left. Um, and then kind of, since then has morphed into different, like an actual rewilding and making attempts to, um, you know, bring, um, you know, ecosystems and different habitats across the world, not just the Middle East to what they used to be, you know, their former, uh, I was going to say glory, but (laughs) their former natural glory. Um, (laughs) So for example, you know, they've got like in the Carpathians of Romania or, um, even conservation efforts for uh, rewilding, you know, mesocarnivores in the Netherlands, you know, whether it's just, you know, reintroducing mustelids, you know, that's all part of rewilding. It doesn't necessarily have to be lions. It just, it's about making the, um, you know, the environment as productive as it used to be as possible. Um, and their actual, their slogan underneath their logo is actually, um, for wilderness with carnivores. Uh, you know, they definitely put the accent on that, but that's, you know, because like we said, they're kind of like, the, you know, carnivores are usually the first ones to go because they're usually seen as competition for livestock, for, you know, security for people and these kinds of things. Um, another organization that's actually, um, one that I've always really, I mean, I've loved all rewilding efforts don't get me wrong um but one i really really do enjoy learning about um which tells a different side of rewilding is trees for life um it's one i've been following since i was in high school it's um a a conservation effort uh for rewilding in scotland that specializes in restoring and rewilding the caledonian forest um the caledonian forest kind of refers to an ecosystem and to a different time period, uh, Caledonia comes actually from the Roman word for that's actually how the Romans, when they were in, you know, you know, in Britain referred to, um, you know, Scotland. And it actually used to be, you know, you know, for a lot of it was an impenetrable forest. A lot of times when we think of Scotland, we think of, um, you know, we think of the highlands that are kind of these grassy, mountain you know scapes you know with perhaps red deer and some species but in fact that that's not the natural um that's not the natural historical habitat it was actually all well you know different forests whether it was scots pine or aspen and all kinds of different you know these natural occurring uh plant species and so what they're all about is um 
you know, they kind of have like this multifaceted approach in restoring it. And, um, you know, firstly, the name of the organization kind of alludes to what they're about. And it's about, you know, they plant different trees, actually. They've had several different tree planting campaigns that have occurred since it was founded um, back in 1989. And they've been pretty successful. Over 1.5 million trees have been planted and continue to be planted by both employees and volunteers alike, whether it's, like I said, Scott Pine, Aspen, Juniper, Birch, and Rowan. Um, and so they've also even um, fenced off certain areas uh, to protect from overgrazing to kind of give the plants and um, the vegetation a chance to breathe, to recuperate, because uh, one of the iconic things of when we think of Scotland is the sheep in the highlands and whatnot. And, you know, if they're not in check, like any herbivore species, they can cause overgrazing a lot like the elk and um, in Yellowstone. So it's the same kind of idea. And um, not only do domestic sheep play a huge role in overgrazing, but also red deer and roe deer, you know, they're unchecked uh, wild herbivores. Uh, so they kind of, keep on doing their thing and that's really taken its toll on the regeneration of the forest the forest itself was originally um for the most part kind of uh been deforested definitely during the you know 17th century uh mainly for the shipping you know building ships um for you know the the british navy and you know marine forces which was the one of the hugest and most um prominent of you know um naval forces at the time which helped create their empire um and so now you know they've been leading a lot of um you know campaigns like i said for um rewilding plants but also for different species of um you know mammals specifically a lot of times like whether it's they've been wanting you know they've been promoting for re reintroducing historically extirpated species such as the lynx beaver wolf wild boar bear of course some of these are kind of you know when you think wolf and bear it'd be a lot more difficult to reintroduce them like mentalities are not ready the habitat is probably too degraded at this point. Um, but the lynx, on the other hand, um, has actually been, if I'm not mistaken, it's been um, it, it's been in the process of being voted upon to actually reintroduce them because, you know, they found that lynx have a very small impact on livestock in terms of, you know, predating on livestock. And it would, you know, having a healthy population and stable population of lynx probably would go pretty un- noticed by the population so that would be the safest bet in terms of reintroducing you know some of the historical mega carnivores uh beavers have been back in scotland for a period of time um yes people do complain about the damages that they cause and whatnot but you know they seem to be doing fine um and then wild boar have actually even come back to scotland kind of on a an accidental way um they were actually escape from like these fancy farms for wild boar meat because wild boar had gone escape you know have gone extinct since you know from the british isles for since the late middle ages um and what happened is in the 1980s people had got like a taste again for wild boar and so these you know private entrepreneurs were raising wild boar and they had a series of storms in the 1980s and 90s and a lot of the fences were destroyed and wild boar escaped and kind of did their thing and um, have made it even into Scotland. So uh, it's, a, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty neat. They also do a lot of, um, re, you know, work to protect and maintain the populations that haven't been extirpated, such as the Scottish wildcat or as locally called the Scottish tiger, um, you know, the Western Cape Cali, white-tailed eagle, and even for the red squirrel. Uh, it's an interesting thing to talk about the red squirrel because – um, the fact that the red squirrel is endangered is it speaks volumes about the habitat because you know for someone who's from the United States or Canada to think the red squirrel you know a red squirrel could be endangered is completely you know unfathomable because they're all over the place but that's just how long the pressure has been on them you know whether it was pen hunting or whether it was um, introducing the gray squirrel that completely you know didn't allow the the red the red squirrel to be able to survive competing for resources, et cetera, et cetera. So they've had done, they've been successful with reintroducing and maintaining the populations, but just goes to show, um, when you're, when you're having to rewild red squirrels, it really just shows, you know, where you're starting from basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's gone that far that even something like that is that we take um, for granted here, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, do you want to tell us about rewilding Europe? Because I know that's oh. probably our, our favorite one. <laughs> yes. Uh, rewilding Europe. Uh, probably my favorite 
organization for uh, rewilding um, anything because it's a uh, you know an organization that's been that was started out of the Netherlands that has you know, they're probably the best um, organization that's best coherency and capability and organization um, that has allowed them to be successful. And they have a really interesting like economic and um, practical model that they base their activities on where, um, you know, their whole, like if you watch one of their promotional videos, it's kind of got capitalized. They, their whole deal is about capitalizing on um, kind of the rural exo that's happening in Europe since the late 60s where a lot of people are no longer you know, living in rural areas. And so like agricultural lands are being abandoned and, you know, wildlife is coming you know, back and whatnot. And their whole idea is, you know, hey, let's capitalize on this. Let's reintroduce different species and let's make, you know, environments very productive. Uh, let's, um, you know, help local communities, whether they're benefiting from ecotourism or benefiting from the, you know, the greater biodiversity and species, you know, there's a, there's a biological reserve in France, not related to the rewilding Europe, but they had reintroduced, um, bison onto their, uh, you know, European bison onto the, their property. And they had noticed that within a year after having the bison who, you know, were common grazers, you know, they're grazing and whatnot. Um, the 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 land had actually all kinds of new species of plants that they hadn't seen in the area before that because of how the way you know um they graze open up different lands and you know the way they were uh passing seeds and whatnot through them and just their natural behavior made it more um better for different plants and so rewilding europe kind of that's what they do on different levels, whether it's in the Southern Carpathians, whether it's in the Oder Delta, whether it's in the Central Apennine Mountains in Italy, whether it's in Western Iberia. They have, um, you know, a huge organization where uh, these projects in place have, uh, you know, vision, accomplishments to date, um, new objectives, and they're really, really thorough. And they produce all kinds of really great uh, reports each year about, you know, what they've accomplished, what they hope to do, how are they doing it, how are they positively impacting the local communities. Um, they're like, they really have their act together and they're making a difference. Yeah, and their approach, like taking at you know, simultaneously the ecological and the economic approach is really important um, for getting buy-in from a lot people of different mindsets, basically. Um, yeah. Because making they, themselves more global, yeah. It's one of their, like, key, you know, whatever tenets is this nature-based economies and, and helping local communities benefit from you know how ecotourism has just become so popular these days around the world and so bringing that prosperity that results from you know nature-based economies to local communities that may be um whatever on a on the verge of suffering no economically yeah. or, or something like that or just improving their current economic state and and then also doing, you know, having the ecological side and, you know, supporting research and um, working to reintroduce species or habitat restoration. I mean, they're just so well-rounded as an organization, as a rewilding organization. Um, and, yeah, I just definitely encourage people to check out their website because they have a lot of cool resources and they just do a lot of awesome stuff. Yeah, I think one of my, you know, like their work in the Southern Carpathians, they were able to reintroduce bison into Romania, you know, it hasn't been there for 200 years, and it's successful, the the communities are happy, proud to have them there. Um, and they also do a lot about um, kind of like reintroducing, hmm, well, you know, how you just released the episode about um, horses, well, they like, they've reintroduced the how could I say that? Um, the um, oh, what's a, a proxy horse to replace the tarpon? You know, uh, yeah. they basically have gotten the most rustic, wild, domestic 
horse and they use it just like a tarpon, which would have naturally occurred in a lot of places in Europe. And they use it so that, you know, when I may, my, when I say using it, they're reintroducing to sites and having it so that, you know, they're just doing their thing as horses grazing around, but now they're opening up, um, different, you know, forested areas. So they're, you know, favor, you know, uh, favorizing, um, you know, little meadows and whatnot. So different plants are showing up and, you know, because then tracks different insects and different birds. And so they've kind of come up with different projects across Europe about reintroducing these kind of more rustic and, um, you know, more closely Less genetically degraded domestic yes, horses. <laughs> I like that. Yes, exactly. That's uh, and very dip- We didn't, we didn't really talk about that in the horse episode. Cause I knew we were going to talk about it here because in Europe, and you know or eurasia where a species like the tarpon was you know it's having feral horses um you know at a acceptable level is okay because they have a role or horses not domestic horses but equines had a role in those ecosystems and like you said they they are beneficial in a lot of ways in many places. And so it's cool to see how they're employed just to help, um, especially with just like vegetation restoration to a natural state. So things aren't so shrubby and they open, they really open things up with their, the way they forage. And on top of horses, they've also even started their own um, Tauros program where they're um, doing the same thing, but with, uh, cattle breeds and trying to reestablish the role that the oryx would have had in Europe. Um, of course, the oryx went extinct in what 1621, I think, and um, you know, uh, in, in Poland. But basically, they're trying to get once again the a breed of cattle that is the closest related to um, the oryx and have them kind of have that once again grazer. Uh, aspect that they bring to the table when they reintroduce them and it, it's a really really neat program i encourage people to go they they've made a very beautiful well-written report about the tourist program and i encourage any of our listeners to go and check it out it's really really neat to see what they're doing and that's that's sort of a good um segue into the last thing that i just want to briefly mention because um it really only deserves mentioning because it's so ridiculous, in my opinion. <laughs> I but know where you're going with this. <laughs> I think we, maybe in the horse episode, Leon and I teased this idea of Pleistocene rewilding, um, which is, which I, I think we briefly mentioned it, but just to remind people, um, rewilding ex- extinct large mammals that have been long extinct, like you know, mammoths, American lion, American cheetah. Um, and this is, I mean, it sounds ridiculous and that's in my opinion because it is, but it's, um, it's a legit thing that some really well-respected scientists, ones that I, you know, look up to and I follow their work are advocates of to try to restore, you know, these extinct ecosystems. But, the biggest thing is that, you know, a lo- most of these species didn't go extinct because of something that humans did. And that's the that's the biggest thing. I, I think that's the biggest difference and the biggest way to separate it out. And I'm sure a lot of people have, you know, a rebuttal against this, but uh, most of it's just speculation. And I don't really believe in, and I don't believe, and that's not a good way to say it, I don't think that the scientific evidence is um, available to support the, you know, the, the time frame that they talk about these geologic periods, like the Pleistocene and stuff. So I think these species were alive a lot more recently, but I don't think that they were killed by humans. I think um, they were went extinct in other ways. And so to try to reestablish species that uh, went extinct for something that we didn't do. Yeah, a lot of the reasons, you know, for climate reasons, you know, even if they existed today, we wouldn't be able to reintroduce them to a lot of the different geographic zones because the the different ecosystems don't exist there anymore uh, that haven't existed since before, you know, Europeans came to North America. And on top of that, um, 
the, the greatest story, the greatest part of this that I find so funny is they, they want to reintroduce uh, the closest relatives, you know, so African lions and <laughs> African cheetahs to, to the United States, basically. Yeah, they want to the plane. You know, they want to. Yeah, to the plane system, they want to put um, elephants, you know, to replace mammoths, to have that kind of mammoth impact, if you will. Kind of like what we were talking about with, you know, horses in Europe. They belong there. Um, so I, I just find that interesting because, A, it's just craziness. But And on top of that, it's, you know, these species are having a hard time where they're naturally occurring right now. Um, and then they want to take them from there and reintroduce them into an area that's not feasible for them you know at all or at least with their speculation but this like you know you were talking earlier the, the science behind it is just i'm really interested what like what the agenda is behind this yeah and it's you know a lot and one argument is you know how you just said they're not doing well in their natural areas anyways well then you know this could be another just like insurance policy in case something happens to those but you know when you get into the weeds like that that is um you know, why don't we actually, instead of, first of all, the amount of money that that would cost, not like it would ever happen because if people can't, I mean, think about what happened to the American bison, you know, 50 million of them completely almost wiped out and people aren't willing to live alongside American bison that were you know, here the, so recently. <laughs> yeah, let alone other animals that don't even fit in the current ecosystem with the current species that exist. And then, yeah, removing them from where they currently aren't doing well. Like, why don't we put effort into recovering them where they are and recovering things that are currently in North America instead of this, like, weird nostalgic pipe dream of having, you know, these megafauna on the American prairie. Like, it's, it's just... kind of like um, Texas, no? I want to see, see Scimitar Horn Oryx on my, my ranch. Gosh, yeah, we won't get into that, but um, it just like uh, it almost seems like a joke to me, especially the like the one of the original papers from 2006 that was written about it. Like I said, a lot of well-respected biologists and stuff, but uh, and I mean, it is a joke to most people, and it is a, I mean, it, to be honest, it's a joke to think that it could ever happen socially and politically. So we can talk about it, you know, no matter your opinion, but like basically the odds are 0% that it would ever happen. Uh, on the other hand, there is a, in, um, in Eastern Siberia, there's a place called the uh, Pleistocene Park or something like that. Um, and the, what they're doing there is a little bit different. They're actually, they've reintroduced like, um, they've brought like bison and, different grazer species to this fenced off, not fenced off, but this private land basically. And what they're having them do is, you know, just doing their job as grazers. And um, it's actually contributing to the health of the permafrost uh, because when there's nothing, there's not a lot of, um, when, how can I explain that? For those who are interested, check it out, Pleistocene Park. It's, it's kind of interesting, a little far-fetched on some things, but the idea is, you know, you know, um, degraded ecosystems, especially with the permafrost, if they're not properly, you know, balanced, the permafrost is, you know, because of climate change and whatnot, it's melting and it's releasing a lot of uh, carbon dioxide and whatnot into the air. Um, and so they're kind of like doing some studies about how the grazing species are helping there, but it's more of like a controlled setting. It's Russia, you know, uh, oh, whatever. Uh, so it's interesting. Anything goes. You know, exactly. Um, so it, it, it's interesting to just, you know, it's like to kind of play devil's advocate and it's interesting to check out. So just kind of throwing that out there. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting stuff. And we can probably go on for a long time just talking oh, about yes. examples so. of rewilding and I mean the benefits uh, the benefit the the you know the take home message is that the benefits especially from all these examples the benefits of rewilding outweigh the downsides. And if you want to take a logical or an economic or mathematical or whatever approach rewilding is always going to win as long as it's within a reasonable sensible you know frame of mind unlike places seen rewilding 
Uh, we're gonna get some emails on that one, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Yeah. People I'm are gonna be like, "That'd be so cool." Be like, "Yeah, sure." Yeah. Until there's an elephant that's like in your little uh, rock garden in the back of your yard. <laughs> That's a good one in your rock bar. I like it. I like and it very then, much. Well, the interesting thing, another interesting thing I wanted to say about the, you know, the attitudes toward rewilding and stuff is that people love the idea of rewilding. Like, yes, just the concept of it. It's like, great. Like, who doesn't think it's a great idea to have these animals back because everyone loves these animals and stuff. But most people, you know, they want it to happen over there, you know, have it happen in Africa or have it happen you know, on somewhere else, not near home. But when it comes near home, especially, you know, Westerners, it, it, pe- people become less comfortable with it. And, you know, that, Oh, it's dangerous. Oh, don't do that. You know, you're gonna, it's like, yeah, right away. Yeah. This is people like, it's just so, I really hate the fear of wildlife that people have. And, um, you know, obviously you want to have a healthy fear, like a healthy respect, but just this like unfounded scaredness or being afraid of wildlife is, it's just, um, it's, it really is ignorance. I'm not saying that in like a, a mean way, but it is, yeah, it's there's, an there's ignorance, a need for education. Un, not understanding. And when you understand the benefits and things like that, like the, if these people in Mozambique, are okay with 24 lions being released, you know, they're not living in some, you know, house like this that I'm in where, you know, I can be protected from the outside. Like I can have air conditioning. I can have all this stuff. These people aren't living in that way and they can live alongside lions in villages and stuff. And that's not the only place that that happens, but they're willing to help restore this ecosystem because they realize the benefit that it has. Um, and I just, I just don't understand why it's just such an encouraging example. And I don't understand why people that, you know, have an education and are more informed about a lot of things can't understand that it it's, it's not logical. And like throughout this podcast, I always talk about logic because I just don't understand why these things can't happen and i don't understand human behavior like it is pretty um discouraging illogical (laughs) yeah and illogical yeah so anyways yeah anything else you want to add um oh yes real quick fun fact for people uh i just have to say this for those who didn't know asiatic lions used to range in southern iraq into the 1920s and 30s uh, there's actually accounts of people who still remember, you know, there's accounts of people today who remember their grandparents telling about hearing lions roar and the Iraqi marshlands um, in the 1920s. Really cool fact. So obviously we're not going to be able to rewild lions anytime soon in southern Iraq, but just gives you an idea of um, historical zoogeography and, uh, you know, rethink twice before you say, oh, that place has never been wild before. A lot of places have been. So. Just yeah. kind of throwing that out there. Lions are lions are an amazing um, example of how a species has just been wiped out. Um, you know, think like think in, in the Bible, like how many lions and bears are in the Bible? Yeah, um, how many times they're mentioned and in middle occurring. the Middle East, Israel, and I mean, like, there's a lot of lions in the Bible, like people fighting and killing lions, like to just to think about there being a bunch of lions in or even in greece you know on pottery and whatnot people fighting lions you know the story of hercules is the same idea you know like that comes from somewhere you know they're not just making that up about i mean hercules maybe but the idea that there was lions present you know how else would they know what a lion looks like it's not like they have you know net geo back then you know so yeah uh, it's, it's just pretty neat it's really neat so there's many many free species and you know those who aren't you know familiar with historical zoogeography check it out it's addicting stuff you start looking and learn about some and then you learn about oh i didn't realize they had that before and then you learn about it more and uh, it's pretty cool stuff and then you just go into spiraling depression yes yes because it's so <laughs> yeah indeed so yep okay well if you want to learn more about the podcast or listen to other episodes you can check out our website um conservation 
And then, of course, we're also on Facebook or Instagram if you want to follow us on there. Or if you want to um, email us, you can uh, contact us at conservationchronicles at gmail.com. And um, hopefully we'll have a one or two more episodes before I head off to Zambia for um, the summer. And then... Maybe we'll pick it up after that. We'll see if I survive. <laughs> from the lions. <laughs> <laughs> no, just more from, no, from a stork. I could get impaled. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Next to you, Irwin. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Too far, Kim. Too far. <laughs> Too soon. Um, okay. All right. Well, thanks for listening and thanks for joining me, Camden. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs>